Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, holy and almighty, omnipotent, triune God, you alone are God. You are all-powerful, and you have decided to reveal yourself to us in your word. We pray, O God, that you sanctify our hearts in your word, because your word is truth, and it is breathed out by you. We pray, O God, that we hear from you this morning, because your word has authority over the spiritual world, Your word has authority over the physical world. And we pray, Lord, that as we live in the spiritual battle between you and Satan, that we choose you by your grace because of the truth of your word. Speak to us now, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. This morning we are in Luke chapter 4. So if you have your copy of God's Word, you can take it and turn to Luke chapter 4. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, our strike team will be coming down. You can raise your hand and they'll hand one out to you. We are on page 555 of the strike team Bibles. And we are joyfully working our way through the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a highly educated physician or doctor, and he was writing his Gospel to a mostly Gentile audience. In the last few weeks in Luke chapter 4, we have learned through Luke that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And in the midst of those temptations, Jesus defeats them by the power of the Holy Spirit, and by the power of the Word of God. Last week, we saw that Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth, and he was teaching the people in the synagogue about how he has come to fulfill Old Testament promises, and the people in his hometown rejected him and sought to kill him. But he escaped, and in our passage this morning, we see Jesus going to another town, Capernaum, And we're going to see the people in this town and in this region responding to Jesus in a different way. So let's look at this passage together. We're in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 31. And I'm going to read all the way through 41. And he, being Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about Jesus went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. 
Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. This is God's all-powerful, authoritative word for us this morning. During World War II, around six million Jews, men, women, and children, were murdered by Nazi Germany. They were poisoned, they were shot, they were beat, they were tortured, they were experimented on, they were starved, and they were overworked. Now also, during World War II, a lot of countries were occupied by Nazi Germany. And what that means is that the Germans invaded them and they took control over that country. Now just for a moment, I want you to imagine that you were in one of these occupied countries. Just put yourself in their shoes. You've seen many people that you've known taken away and you have no idea where they have gone. And your freedoms are slowly being taken away from you. Your nightly curfew becomes earlier and earlier every morning. Your food rations become less and less every week. And you've heard about Germany's hatred towards Jews. And you've heard about some of the things that they are doing to them. And one day, you get a knock on your door. And it's your friend who is a Jew, asking for help. What do you do? If you say no to your friend, more than likely your friend is going to die. But if you say yes, you're risking your own life. In that moment, you have to make a decision whose side you're on. When you're in the middle of a war, you have to choose whose side you are on. When you're in the middle of a war, you have to choose whose side you're on. And we are in a war. It's not World War II. We are in a spiritual war between good and evil, between light and darkness, between angels and demons, between God and Satan. And to quote John Piper, The casualties of this war are millions, and the stakes are eternal. End quote. And there is no neutrality, because when you're in the middle of the war, you have to choose whose side you're on. So in the midst of this war between God and Satan, whose side are you on? In this spiritual war, I want to encourage you this morning to choose... Jesus' side. And there are two reasons from this passage why we should choose Jesus. First, we should choose Jesus because his word has authority over the spiritual, verses 31 through 36. And second, we should choose Jesus because his word has authority over the physical, 
verses 37 through 41. So his word has authority over the spiritual and his word has authority over the physical. First point this morning, his word has authority over the spiritual. So Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth and he went on a 20-mile journey to the city of Capernaum, which is a city in Galilee. Galilee is in the region of northern Israel. And while he was there, he was teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, the synagogue of a town like that was the community center, and it was the place where people gathered regularly to study God's word and to pray. Now, most synagogue services were led by lay leaders, such as scribes, who would read and teach from the Old Testament. And most of the time, when a teacher was visiting, the local synagogue leaders would invite this visiting teacher to speak to them, and this especially would happen a lot on the Sabbath. So picture Jesus. He's coming into this synagogue. He's the guest speaker, and he's reading and he's teaching from the Old Testament. More than likely, he's, after he read the scripture, he's sitting down in front of them, and he's teaching them about how the Old Testament is fulfilled in him, which is exactly um, his pattern that we saw last week in the, in the text. And the congregation was probably sitting on mats on the floor. So just picture Jesus sitting down, teaching, and the people sitting on mats, facing him, hearing from Jesus. And as they were hearing Jesus, the people were overwhelmed with amazement because his word, it possessed authority. His teaching and his message has the same authority and power and control that the Old Testament scripture does. When Jesus taught, his message was the very word of God in all of its almighty authority. Jesus' words equals God's words. Now, the best way that I could think to illustrate this is if you have a child who is used to listening to a babysitter, a babysitter's only authority comes from the parent, versus a child listening to their parent who has full authority over that child. There's a huge difference. Jesus' teaching carries the full weight and authority of God. Now again, picture, they're in the middle of this service, and while Jesus was teaching, a man from within the congregation gets up, he was possessed by an unclean demon, and he yells at Jesus. Imagine someone standing up and yelling at me right now. That's what it would be like. And the demon-possessed man, he shouts at Jesus. He says, ha, which is essentially in Greek, leave us alone. What do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? And then the demon says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. This is a crazy scene. I can't imagine being there. But this demon gives us insight into who Jesus is and what he came to do. This demon calls Jesus the Holy One of God. And this is in sharp contrast with the demon the text says that this demon is unclean and he's from Satan. But Jesus is holy, which means that he is set apart from uncleanness and he is from God. Jesus Christ is the Holy One sent from God to cleanse and remedy all the soul-ruining damages Satan has done to mankind. And the demon was wondering, Jesus, have you come to destroy us? Jesus Christ has come to destroy and defeat Satan 
and his demons. This implies opposition. It implies a war. And this is the spiritual war that we are all involved in. And when you're in the middle of a war, you have to choose whose side you're on. Whose side are you on? Choose Jesus' side because He and His Word has the authority in this spiritual war. And we see this in Jesus' response to the demon-possessed man. Jesus rebuked this man. Again, I can't, I can't imagine watching this. This guy gets up and is yelling at Jesus, and Jesus rebukes this man. He says, be silent and come out of him. And at the word of Jesus, the demon came out of that man. And all the people who were there, they sat in amazement at what they saw. And they were amazed at the authority of Jesus' words, because with authority and a power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. The word of Jesus has effectual authority over the spiritual world. What that means is that his word has the authority and the power to carry out everything that he says. And there's a clear connection here between Jesus' rebuke here and his response to Satan's temptation at the beginning of Luke chapter 4. Now for us, we looked at Luke chapter 4 two weeks ago. But for Luke, this is all connected in one chapter. Jesus defeats Satan's temptations by quoting God's word. And Jesus defeats the demon's possession by his own word. We see very clearly that Jesus' word equals God's word. And this is why the people were amazed. They knew that God's word had authority, but here comes this man named Jesus whose word carries the full authority of God. There's a movement within Christianity called red letter Christians. In essence, red letter Christians only take the words of Jesus seriously. And they're called red letters because in a lot of Bibles in mine, the words of Jesus are in red. But in this chapter alone, Luke makes it clear that Jesus' words equals God's words, and God's words equals Jesus' words. And there is no authoritative difference between the red letters and the black letters. All of Scripture is the Word of God. Amen? Amen? And we need all of Scripture to fight in the spiritual battle that we are in. Scripture is our sword in this battle. No one goes to battle without a weapon. Again, going back to World War II, just imagine if an army of soldiers who had no weapons, they marched up to Nazi Germany, who had dozens of tanks and planes and countless number of machine guns. What do you think would happen? They don't have any weapons? They're going to get mowed down in a matter of minutes, maybe seconds. You cannot go to war without a weapon. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we are in a war against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he tells us that we need a weapon, and he tells us that we have a weapon. And that weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So choose Jesus by taking up the Word of God 
in this spiritual battle. But what does it look like to take up the Word of God in this spiritual war? That would be a really good community group question. So I'm not going to dive too deep into it now. But what we have to know is that great battle is for our allegiance. Satan wants you to pledge your allegiance to him. In other words, he wants you to choose him over God. He wants you to commit to him. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to obey him. The devil wants your soul. And I hope that startles you a little bit this morning. And he will use any strategy to make that happen. And so we need to take up God's word to fight against the strategies of Satan. How do we do that? By reading and meditating on his word. By believing his word that says that Satan is trying to lead us to hell. And by believing his word, by trusting that Jesus has saved us from our sin. By obeying the word when Satan is trying to get you to sin against God. By praying the word against the lies of Satan. By sharing the word with those who are in bondage to sin and Satan. And we can do this because God's word is the light that triumphs over darkness. His word is the truth that defeats all lies. His word tells us about the love that conquers fear. His word tells us about the good that crushes evil. His word tells us about the God who will destroy all of his enemies. His word has the power and the authority over the spiritual world. And his word is our sword. And we need it. And if you're taking up the word of God to fight against the strategies of Satan, it's evidence of your allegiance to Christ. And I hope that encourages you this morning that you are on the right team. But if you're not taking up the word of God against Satan who is trying to steal your soul, I must ask you, whose side are you on? Because when you're in the middle of the war, you have to choose whose side you're on. So choose Jesus by taking up the word. Choose Jesus because his word has authority over the spiritual world. Choose Jesus because his word has authority over the physical world. And that leads us to our second point this morning. <clears throat> Choose Jesus because his word has authority over the physical, which is verses 37 through 41. So after Jesus rebuked the demon in the middle of the synagogue, the news about Jesus quickly spread throughout the surrounding area. And Jesus left the synagogue and he went to Simon's house. Now this is Simon Peter, who will become one of Jesus' disciples, as we will learn in a couple weeks, Lord willing. And Simon Peter's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And the Greek text describes it with a lot more intensity that she was tormented with an intense fever. And from this, we can imagine that she was probably achy, shivering, sweating, and possibly even convulsing, and maybe even delirious. 
She was probably near death. And they asked Jesus to heal her. And so Jesus stood over her and he rebuked the fever. And at the authoritative and powerful word of Jesus Christ, this deathly serious fever left her. And immediately after being healed, Peter's mother-in-law stood up and she began to serve them. Now that seems kind of odd to me, um, that she began to serve immediately after being healed. But culturally, waiting on guests was a very important piece of hospitality, and it was normally assigned to the adult woman of the household. So this was her role. And that's what's going on culturally, but I think Luke is also making a theological point. That at the word of Jesus, Peter's mother-in-law, who was at the point of death, was healed so completely that it was as if she had never been sick. The word of God has authority over the physical. Now the sun was setting on the same Sabbath day. Our whole passage takes place in one day. And the news about Jesus had spread so wide and so quickly that everyone who had any sort of sickness or disease, was brought to Jesus. And he laid his hands on every single one of them, and he healed them. And here again, we see Jesus' power and authority over the physical. He has the power and authority to restore and heal any and every aspect of the physical world. This is good news. But what does it mean for you or someone you love when they get sick? What if you or someone you love gets cancer? What about diabetes or Alzheimer's or even the coronavirus? Should we pray for God to heal us? Should we expect God to heal us? Those are two very important questions. I've struggled with chronic health issues for many, many years, and I've wrestled with these questions a lot. And I believe that we should pray for God to heal us, and I believe that we should expect God to heal us. Our God is the creator and sustainer of all things. He has the power to heal the greatest disease and raise the dead to life. And He can and He does heal people from their physical ailments. But, we have to understand that God has something way bigger in mind than healing us from our physical ailments. He doesn't want us to live our best life now. Therefore, we can expect God to answer our prayer when we pray for healing It just might not look like exactly what we're praying for. And this is why we must keep the main point of these healings in mind. And the main point is this, that Jesus Christ has come to heal us from the root cause of all of the sickness, suffering, and death in this world. And if the root cause is healed, all of the symptoms will be healed as well eventually. And suffering and sickness and death are all symptoms of the root cause of sin. And Jesus has come to save us and heal us from sin. To paraphrase J.C. Ryle, 
All of these healings are intended to proclaim to us the amazing truth that Jesus Christ is the appointed healer of every evil which sin has brought into the world. Jesus Christ is the great physician who has come to restore what has been broken by sin. And all of these healings at the beginning of Jesus' ministry are meant to point forward to the cross where Jesus deals with the root cause of suffering by bearing the wrath that we deserve for our sin. But not only that, all of these healings at the beginning of Jesus' ministry are meant to point forward to the end of his ministry, which is when he will come back and make all things new. And he will turn our mourning into rejoicing. And there will be no more sickness or disease. And there will be no more cancer or diabetes or Alzheimer's or coronavirus or any physical ailments because our physical bodies will be restored. Amen? And as we wait for that glorious day, we can pray in faith that He will answer us when we pray for healing. And even if He doesn't heal us here, we can trust that His answer to our prayer of healing is greater than we can possibly imagine. And we can trust this because His Word has authority over the physical world. Now Jesus healed every one of the people that came to Him. And when He was doing this, many demons came out of the people He was healing. And when the demons came out, they shouted, You are the Son of God! But Jesus rebuked them, and He would not allow them to speak because they knew that He was the Christ. These demons knew that Jesus was the Christ. Who or what is the Christ? What does that mean? The Christ is the Messiah or the Anointed One. And He's the one that God promised in the Old Testament who would come and save God's people from their sin. He's the one God promised to anoint with the Holy Spirit to restore a broken humanity. He is the one that God promised to deliver His people. He is the one who would come and seek and save the lost. And the demons knew that Jesus is the Christ. It's not as if the demons are just meeting Jesus for the first time. They knew Him. They knew that Jesus is the promised Deliverer. They knew that Jesus is the Son of God. They knew that Jesus is the Holy One of God. But their knowledge was a knowledge without faith, without hope, and without love. This is absolutely terrifying to me. How many of you know that Jesus is Savior, but you don't trust in Him for salvation? How many of you know that Jesus is the Son of God, but don't obey Him in His Word? How many of you know that Jesus is the Holy One of God, but don't look to Him for holiness? See, even the demons knew these things about Jesus, and they trembled with fear. And to quote J.C. Ryle, it's terrifying to know that some of you here may be nothing better than the demons. We are in a war 
and we must choose between Jesus and Satan. And knowing stuff about Jesus is not the same as choosing Him. Choosing Jesus is trust that flows into obedience. It's commitment that leads to sacrifice. It's knowledge that flows into action. Does your knowledge of your sin make you hate it? Does your knowledge of Christ make you trust and obey Him? Does your knowledge of God's Word make you strive to live it out? Maybe you're here this morning and you know the truth about Jesus, but you don't really care because you think you have everything that you need. This is one of Satan's greatest strategies. He wants you to think that you are saved because you come to church every once in a while. He wants you to think that you are saved because you think that your good outweighs your bad. He wants you to think that you are saved because you know things about Jesus. He wants you to think that you are saved because you don't realize that you are in a spiritual war. In the mid-1930s, the Queen Mary was one of the most luxurious passenger ships in the world. And she was known for carrying famous passengers such as Bob Hope, or Clark Gable, or Winston Churchill. Churchill. You guys are like, I have no idea who those people are. <laughs> Two people do. Queen Mary boasted of having five dining areas, five lounges, two cocktail bars, two swimming pools, a grand ballroom, and even a squash court. And again, you're like, what's a squash court? But just imagine a carnival cruise that only the rich and famous could afford. But when World War II hit in 1939, the Queen Mary was transformed into a troop transport. She was painted a gray camouflage and was stripped of all of her luxurious amenities. Grand dining rooms where high-class guests had beautiful plates and glasses and a dazzling arrays of knives and forks were replaced with metal trays where people were squished in. The ship's passenger capacity went from 3,000 high-class passengers to 15,000 troops. A ship that was once full of comfort and entertainment was transformed to fight in a great world war. Queen Mary is a great example of the sharp contrast between life during a time of peace and life during a time of war. And one of, great, uh, one of Satan's greatest strategies and lies is to make us think that we are in a time of peace. And so we seek to live lives that are full of comfort and entertainment. When the reality is that we are in a war. We're in a war between light and darkness. Between good and evil. Between the angels and the demons. Between God and Satan. And when you're in the middle of the war... You have to choose whose side you're on. Whose side are you on? 
If you're not sure whose side you're on, please do not leave this morning without talking to someone. You can talk to me. I'll be hanging out back there. can maybe volunteer life. He's hanging out back there. Um, but there's many people that would love to talk to you about Jesus Christ. But beloved Christian, I say everything that I've said so far to say this. That I want to encourage you to remember that you are in a war. And I want you to remember whose side you're on. And I want you to continue to choose Christ. When you're tempted to look at porn or lust, choose Christ and turn away. When you're holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness, choose Christ and forgive. When you're anxious about the future, choose Christ and trust Him. When you have an opportunity to share the Gospel, choose Christ and share Him. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep choosing Christ every minute of every day because His Word has authority over the spiritual world and His Word has authority over the physical world. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father, we thank You for Your glory. We thank You that in the middle of this spiritual war we can look at Your Word that is all-powerful and authoritative and we can know for certain that You have won this war. You have sent Your Son Jesus to destroy and defeat Satan and sin and death once and for all. But Lord, we still feel and we still live in the middle of the war zone as we wait for You to come back and make all things new. As we wait, Lord, give us hearts to fight by taking up Your Word. Give us hearts to fight by choosing You every minute of every day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.